Support for CJSW's podcasts comes from listeners just like you. Visit cjsw.com slash donate and join thousands of people who help make independent campus and community radio a reality for the city of Calgary and beyond. CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcast in bloom. In Calgary. This is David Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. Afghan population understood democracy as corrupt officials getting to power through buying votes and this notion of empowering women, a traditional society, conservative patriarchal society, all of a sudden associating democracy with women taking off the burqa, becoming so free and liberal that they don't attach to any social and cultural norms. This was the perception of democracy to the mass population of Afghanistan. That's Rangina Hamidi, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Rangina Hamidi on Afghanistan, past and present. Afghanistan, land of the Afghans, more than two millennia ago, and this may surprise you, was a major center of Buddhism. Situated on the fabled Silk Road, this mountainous landlocked country has an old and rich history and culture with great poets like Rabia Balkhi, Hushal Khatak, and most renowned of all, Rumi. Afghanistan has been called the graveyard of empires. Just ask the British, the Russians, and the Americans. Today, it is ruled by the Taliban, notorious for their rigid brand of Islam. The situation in the country is bleak. It is under sanctions, Hunger and poverty are widespread. Violence, though reduced, continues. Education for girls is limited. Ahmed Rashid, author of the bestseller Taliban, warns, unless the Taliban are prepared to moderate their policies, Afghanistan will remain the fulcrum of unrest and turbulence in Central Asia for years to come. To talk about Afghanistan is Rangina Hamidi. Rangina Hamidi was born in Afghanistan. In 1981, she emigrated to Pakistan and then to the United States in 1988. She returned to Afghanistan in 2003. She worked to better the lives of Afghans, particularly women and girls, through development projects and, most importantly, education. She was the last Minister of Education of Afghanistan before the Taliban came to power. She's co-author of the book, Embroidering Within Boundaries, Afghan Women Creating a Future. I talked with her in mid-September in the studios of KGNU in Boulder, Colorado. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Most people know very little about Afghanistan. Maybe they've read the novel The Kite Runner, but they certainly do know about 9-11, although it's important to point out that no Afghans were among the attackers. Uh, the U.S. invaded Afghanistan in October of 2001, leading to a 20-year period of U.S. and NATO military presence, which ended on August 15, 2021, when Kabul, the capital, was captured and the president, Ashraf Ghani, fled the country. Talk about the past and the present and how they intersect in terms of uh, Afghan history. Thank you, and that's a complicated uh, position you've placed me in because since I can remember my life uh, of 46 years, my life has been part of, or the conflict of Afghanistan, rather, has been part of my life, uh, of my past and my present. Interestingly enough, being a young woman uh, living in Virginia, 
at that time as an Afghan-American who was very much interested in understanding the politics and the situations uh, on the ground in Afghanistan. When America decided to go to Afghanistan in October of, 20, of 2001, after September 11th, I never heard Afghans in the diaspora in the U.S. and or those Afghans living in Afghanistan that we were in touch with, family and friends. Nobody ever talked about the going of America to Afghanistan as an invasion. Everybody welcomed, whether they were in country or outside of the country, this effort of the international community, community led by America as a potential opportunity to reclaim who we were and who we are as Afghans. And I think the reason that the welcome was there was because Afghans had a memory of, of America from America's involvement with Afghanistan from the 1950s and 60s, when Americans invested in education and development projects as big as dam, you know, water dams, electricity projects, road projects, sustainable long-term projects that to this day remain. And so Afghans were thinking that America was coming with that kind of a commitment. Of course, it involved bombing out and, and, and kicking out the Taliban in 2001, but Little did Afghans expect what America was going to bring for the next 20 years. And then I think the surprise that has hurt Afghans the most is Afghans unanimously believe that America handed the country and its 40 million population over to the Taliban, the very regime that they ousted in 2001. I don't know if the betrayal, using betrayal is the right word to use here, because you get betrayed by people you love and respect. And I guess I'm using the word betrayal um, a bit uh, with caution, because I think internally and emotionally, Afghans, whether they were our leaders or the common population, initially thought and expected Americans to be friendly and caring for the nation and for the people. And so, yes, I guess there was this little bit of expectation that you just don't hand us back over to the very enemy that you fought 20 years ago. And and yet the new realization now when people talk about betrayal is, well, we were fooled as leaders and as citizens to believe that America really came with care. Um, and I think it's been a huge learning lesson for all Afghans. Well, empires, imperial systems are not noted for their sensitivity and cultural uh, awareness. Uh, Tariq Ali, is a Pakistani-British uh, writer and mm -hmm. activist, um, he wrote in his book, The 40-Year War in Afghanistan, he quotes a U.S. general, Douglas Lute, as saying, and I'm quoting here, we were devoid of a fundamental understanding of Afghanistan. We didn't know what we were doing. That's a rather remarkable revelation. And one that actually both makes me laugh and hurt at the same time. If you did not know what you were doing, why did you go in the country in the first place? And to play with millions of lives for, for the past four and a half decades, the Afghan people have paid sacrifices left and right. I have a hard time believing generals or really top officials within the administration now and before, and also experts, these so-called experts on Afghanistan, saying that we had no idea what we were doing there. Any sane mind would tell you that if you don't know what you're doing, you either get out of the situation to learn and figure out what you're doing and then do it if you want to do it, and if not, leave it alone. So ultimately, I, I believe that many people didn't know what they were doing, but who ends up paying the price is the Afghan children, Afghan girls, Afghan women, and the Afghan population at large. Were you surprised by the speed of the Taliban conquest in 2021? I mean, here's a, a group without helicopters, with no air force, with very few modern weapons, yet they were able to sweep across the country and the so-called government army of 300,000 
uh, soldiers simply disappeared. Now, it's been suggested that that 300,000 figure is fake, sure. that these are ghost soldiers, they show up on payroll sheets, but they don't exist in reality. Nevertheless, it was a stunning military victory. Well, first of all, I will not deny the fact that um, a lot of these numbers were inaccurate. Um, having served in the Ministry of Education, I know the level of corruption that had developed or existed within my ministry, uh, particularly with data and numbers, whether it was staff or number of students. So I, I'm not going to be surprised uh, to learn and believe um, that the number of soldiers that we were claiming to have had, which was you know, close to, I've even heard of 350,000, um, that those numbers were inaccurate. But I think the speed at which the fall of Afghanistan did take place was one that it was very difficult to predict. Uh, we knew things were in trouble. We knew things were fall, you know, the situation was getting tense day by day. But nobody predicted that it would, that the whole country would fall within days or within weeks, rather. There was a lot of conversation that, of course, never made it to local media or media um, outlets internationally, particularly in the U.S. Uh, so locally, we would hear days coming towards uh, August 15th that political political leaders or political officials, I don't, I don't, I don't want to call anybody leaders because Afghanistan didn't really have many leaders, unfortunately. Political officials across Afghanistan were known to have called various government officials within the provincial level, so governors or, or, or military officials uh, across the country, to just let go, uh, meaning don't fight the Taliban back. And so provinces, districts were basically handed over to the Taliban without any fighting between the at least, you know, even minimal existence of the military forces uh, within the Afghan government. And so that played a huge role. And the second thing I think that played a huge role were the Taliban, even though they might not have had very sophisticated uh, military equipment to fight, they had a very sophisticated social media presence. I wouldn't be surprised that whoever was running their their Twitter accounts and their Facebook accounts and their you know other social media accounts was giving information that was often not true, including some private media sources within Afghanistan who used their misinformation as a mechanism to work against the government because they were against you know President Ashraf Ghani's presidency and government. So there was multiple avenues of how the information was shared with, with the society to make, make it believe that the Taliban were actually winning the territories as fast as they did. And sometimes it probably wasn't even the case, but the media announced it and then people believed it. And even if there were soldiers present to fight and to battle, they probably just left saying, well, if the Taliban have taken over, what am I fighting for? Would you say that corruption, the issue of corruption, undermined support for the government? You know, corruption is a major, major critical point uh, of the Afghan government, not only under President Ashraf Ghani, but corruption really started with President Karzai taking power in 2000, you know, one in 2002. Corruption started with the contracts, military contracts that were being given to uh, uh, warlords, drug lords, their family members, their brothers, their sons. And that prevailed, that, that continued for the next 20 years. So nobody can deny that corruption was not a key factor uh, in the fall of Afghanistan. But what I would like to remind our audience is that there are Afghan uh, speakers uh, all over the diaspora now across the world who say, well, Ashraf Ghani's cabinet or government was corrupt. Everybody was corrupt in Afghanistan. From 2002 onwards, everybody had their hand and feet in corruption. So as someone that I've worked closely with, President Ashraf Ghani personally was not corrupt. That I can vouch for with all my, my, my conviction. But does that mean that there were not corrupt elements around him? Absolutely there were. 
and who was empowering them, who was supporting them, who was maintaining them. This is the big conversation because 40 plus nations were involved in the politics of Afghanistan. And all of these nations and their support to the various factions within the Afghan society for the past 20 years or from 2001 until 2021, they were all involved in corruption, including America. The goal of nation building is very ambitious, and uh, the U.S. and NATO efforts in Afghanistan certainly fall within those uh, parameters of flawed, deeply flawed uh, attempts to build a country. How does an outside military force uh, pretend to have the wherewithal and the knowledge and the insight to assist one of the poorest countries on the face of the earth that has had its own internal problems. I think that's the mistake that America has continued, you know, not not just it didn't start with Afghanistan, and I'm afraid it won't end with Afghanistan. This notion of we need to go and tell a people or a region how to act and uh, create a structure of governance there's no doubt that um, Afghanistan has has suffered greatly, you know, before 2001 by uh, the communist coup in 1979, the Russian invasion, and then f- fighting against the Russians until 1989, which ended up in destroying even the weakest structures that might have existed in the society. It all got destroyed in a war. War is no joke. You know, and and I want people to understand that wars don't just kill people and destroy buildings and roads. Wars destroy minds. War destroy and kill hopes. And so you have a whole nation, a young generation of a nation that that only knew what life as within war. So for them to sit and sophisticatedly plan and strategize to rebuild a structure, a structure that is unknown because we were a monarchy that had a semi-democracy to an extent from 1973 to 1979, followed by a coup. And then the violence that just continued in Afghan society from 1979 until 2001, you know, when America uh, went to Afghanistan. But even after 2001, the supposed democracy that built itself overnight, I criticize the building of a democracy in any society because, first of all, we know that even democracy is under question in a great nation like America as we sit and speak. But how do you build democracy in a nation where 90% of its people are illiterate? How do you build democracy in a nation where... Traditionally, the society has practiced customs and traditions and religion and and faith and and customary practices for over 5,000 years. They might not necessarily be against democracy, the notion of democracy in theory, but before they can understand it, we just dump it and say, okay, now you're a democratic nation and you're going to have this this practice called elections where one man and one vote is ultimately going to decide the leadership for the country. This was a tribal society. This was a feudalistic society. It was a society where people didn't understand that the governance and that structure and to overnight assume that pumping money, loads and loads of money in a system and in a society where there was no mechanism to absorb and then you title it as a democracy Ultimately, people came out of it, you know, on the ground as two definitions of democracy, corruption, because there's money coming in, no form of absorption. So therefore, people pocket it. And so therefore, corruption. So democracy is corruption. And this overemphasis on women's rights, women's emancipation. Remember, let me remind our audience, President Bush got the support for going to Afghanistan on the premise of freeing Afghan women. And yet those same Afghan women, 20 years later, we hand them back over to a a terrorist group. What happened to the cause after 20 years? So the Afghan population understood democracy as corrupt officials getting to power through buying votes and 
this notion of empowering women, a traditional society, conservative patriarchal society, all of a sudden associating democracy with women taking off the burqa, throwing the scarf off, wearing Western dress, becoming so free and liberal that they don't attach to any social and cultural norms. This was the perception of democracy to the mass population of Afghanistan, unfortunately. The U.S. involvement in Afghanistan goes back to the late 1970s when Jimmy Carter was president, his national security advisor was Brzezinski, and they devised the plan to destabilize Afghanistan by supporting fundamentalist Islamic formations uh, to lure the Soviets, at that time it was the Soviet Union, to invade Afghanistan. Well, and this is a history of my lifetime. I was four years old when my family fled the communist coup slash the invasion of of the USSR at that time into my country. And because my father refused to join the communist regime that was in in power at that time in Kabul, he had no option uh, but to flee because otherwise he would be killed. And it's interesting because the memory of uh, particularly my own Afghans uh, is very, very short-lived as well because they've forgotten the atrocities that the communist regime also committed against humanity, against Afghans. Um, and, and somehow when we start to compare the various different regimes, we forget what led to and what created the creation of, of these um, uh, you know, horrible and horrific, violent regimes. But America did empower and support the ideology that was built on extremism, on the Wahhabi uh, uh, version of Islamic, uh, you know, ideological support for the Mujahideen to come and fight. Uh, We cannot forget, you know, it was interesting because our U.S. tax dollars paid for the printing of books of, to teach children in the Afghan camps in Pakistan, where we taught mathematics to the children, six, seven-year-old boys and girls, that two bullets plus two bullets equals four bullets. And so when you invest in a whole nation through that kind of a mentality and promoting and supporting and funding violence at that level... I don't know why we're surprised to receive and to see the formation and the continuation of this ideology continuing because there is profits to be made by people who are investing in this war. And the ideology that we invested in the late 1970s, which was the ideology of extremism, of Wahhabism, of anti-women and anti-girls, I was pulled out of school as a refugee kid living in Pakistan in Quetta in 1986 by the very Mujahideen that America was funding and supporting. And the reason for me being pulled out of school, because my Pashtun father had no problem sending his Pashtun daughters to school, yet the Mujahideen at that time, funded by the U.S., thought that it was not necessary for girls to go to school. And those Mujahideen were called freedom fighters by Reagan. They were welcomed uh, to the White House. There's an infamous photograph of some of these warlords and drug traffickers, you know, sitting in the Oval Office with the President of the United States. But to dial back a little bit more into history, because it's so interesting, uh, most people don't know that Britain invaded Afghanistan three times, uh, the first in 1839, followed by 1878 and then in 1919. And in each instance, it was unable to conquer Afghanistan. Now, in your book, Embroidering Within Boundaries, uh, you describe Malalai of Maiwan uh, as one of the three women that you write about in the book. You counter the notion of Afghan women as helpless and you know hopeless. Uh, can you read that passage Uh, from the book. Yes, I'm happy to read. And the title of uh, this uh, excerpt is uh, Afghan Role Models, and Malalai of Maywand is one of them. 
There is a misconception that Afghan women have not had heroines in their history, and as such, role models for change must be sought outside of Afghanistan. However, Afghanistan's history includes laudatory examples of women warriors, poets, educators, and politicians. Three stories illuminate how these strong women worked to change their communities, while while also enhancing the status for women across Afghanistan. Malalai of Maiwand is an epic Pashtun heroine of the Second Afghan-Anglo War of the late 19th century, whose encouragement gave young warriors the strength to stand and fight back against the British. Her famous Landi, which is a poem, is the following to the Afghan warriors. Young, and this is a translation. Young love, if you do not fall in the battle of Maiwand, by God, someone is saving you as a symbol of shame. And I'll read it in Pashto as well. Kapa Maiwand ki shahid nashwe, khudai julaleya benangide satina. Malalai is remembered throughout Afghanistan to this day, and her example of bravery and love for country is shared in many major national gatherings and writings. Malalai is said to have held the Afghan flag from the Afghan bearer who fell as a result of a British bullet. She sang the following Landay as she held the Afghan flag. With the drop of my sweetheart's blood shed in defense of the motherland, will I put a beauty spot on my forehead such as would put to shame the rose in the garden. Malalai was also shot dead in the battle, and today her name has become a very popular girl's name throughout Pashtun communities. And there are a couple of other uh, women that you write about as kind of role models, Chicago Nagahani and Sitara Achkeze. Yes. Shakuko uh, Nagahani was uh, living during the time of the last monarchy, as well as uh, President Daoud Khan, which is right before the coup. 1970s. In the 1970s. And then Sitara Atsukzai was in Kandahar in the early 2000s. Um, she came back and returned to Kandahar, her hometown, from Germany, um, living in exile in Germany, and then returned um, only to be killed uh, right in front of her home in Kandahar City, and these two powerful women, I mean, Malala is an epic, so nobody really knows uh, who Malala was or more about her background other than uh, what I read and that, that she is a, a heroine in that narrative. But Shakuko Nagahani uh, is known to have become widowed uh, at a young age, losing her husband to an, an illness and becoming a widow with young children. She's known to have had led her life refusing to remarry because she was a young widow and uh, taking an oath to raise her children and educate her children. And then in her community, she built herself, herself the respect that is needed to lead women and lead the community with a woman's voice. In fact, she inserted herself to be the only female uh, member of the, the local shura or the council of elders. And the story goes that the council could not start the meeting until she arrived, even if she was late. And she became the forceful voice um, in the community for making sure that girls were not forced into marriages they did not want. Uh, in fact, there's even one incident where a girl had fallen in love with someone that outside of the tribe and could not, uh, you know, the two families would never come together. And Shakuko is known to have supported both of these young lovers. Um, and in fact, the families just accepted that she intervened and she helped these couples start a new life somewhere else. Um, and then uh, Sitara coming back from Germany, an educated Kandahari woman who belonged to the Achegzai uh, tribe, was a prominent voice in the local politics before the fall, where she refused to allow the men uh, to make every decision for the for the province and particularly for women and girls and unfortunately we we lost her you know they somebody shot her in her head right in, outside of her home in Kandahar um, as violence was increasingly uh, taking roots in, in in Kandahar again after uh, the initial 
peaceful years of from 2002 till about 2006-ish, it was relatively peaceful. But once the insurgency started to reshape, uh, Sitara was one of the uh, sacrifices, unfortunately. But these were prominent Afghan Pashtun women who didn't do what they did with the support of the international community. They were active, and yes, they might be a handful you know, and we might not hear about a lot of women, Afghan women doing that. But at the local grassroots level, Afghan women have historically played a major role uh, in decision making and, and gearing decisions in one direction or another. But unfortunately, the narrative of the past 20 years kind of showcased, particularly now, where everything written and spoken about the Afghan women is this poor this powerless creature living at the mercy of the terrorist organization called the Taliban. And the world must pull each and every one of them out because otherwise the Taliban are there to kill. I have a trouble with that narration personally and professionally as an Afghan woman and someone who has had a role, a leadership role in the previous government. And I don't think that the solution that the generous American society is offering to Afghan women, I don't think the solution to the problem is to get everybody out of the country because there's a group called the Taliban in power. This is not the solution to Afghanistan's problems. This is not a, a sustainable uh, solution to the problems that Afghan women will continue to face because there's no way that the world can evacuate more than 20 million women who are now living and young girls growing up in Afghanistan. You're listening to Rangina Hamidi on Afghanistan, past and present. This is Independent Alternative Radio. To get copies of this program, call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977 or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Afghanistan is a multicultural, multi-ethnic uh, country of almost 40 million people. There are two national languages, Dari and Pashto. There are populations of Tajiks, Uzbeks, Hazaras, and the largest group uh, is the Pashtuns. You are a Pashtun. What can you say about your community, its values, its how, how it organizes itself across the country? Well, the Pashtuns uh, have historically considered Afghanistan to be their home, and it is their home. You know, one of the contested um, political uh, treaties that were, uh, that was signed in 1980, uh, sorry, 1892, uh, called the Durand Line, which kind of divided the Pashtun tribe, uh, which, you know, at the time there was no Pakistan. And in 1892, Pakistan as a nation did not exist. And so this treaty was signed by the British at the time in the region, you know, occupying India uh, with the Pashtuns or the, or the Afghanistan leadership. Uh, and I don't know the historic reasoning behind the Durand Line, but unfortunately the Durand Line was supposed to expire in 1992, 100 years after the treaty was signed. It's interesting that the formation of the Taliban is right around that time frame because the Taliban officially came to power in 1994, but the creation of the Taliban is in those years right around the time where the Durand Line is supposed to come to an end. And the Durand Line has been a contested political battle between Afghanistan and Pakistan as two neighboring countries uh, since the formation of Pakistan, because Afghans always knew, and particularly the Pashtun tribe, because the Pashtuns were in leadership positions, and they knew that as a nation, this the creation of Pakistan was splitting the Pashtuns in half, half remaining in the Pakistan territory side of it and half in Afghanistan. 
And this is an issue that is, it's a can of worms that no international power nor the local political powers in Afghanistan have been able to address uh, officially with Pakistan. So the Pashtuns historically have been in power in that region, in that geography for centuries. And and they considered that area and that region as their home. Now, some of the other tribes that have remained and 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 sustained their lives in the territory, uh, predominantly, you know, Tajiks in the north, the Hazaras in central Afghanistan, and then uh, Uzbeks and Turkmen, you know, kind of scattered in uh, central north areas, uh, but they're uh, even a smaller minority than the Hazaras. Tensions always exist, and there's always tension, you know, among people living in a joint society. I mean, we're here in America with the greatest law-abiding country in the world, yet we still have racial differences. But there's problems in various communities. But what binds this country together is law and the Constitution and the enforcement of law. So in a in a small place, in a smaller, much smaller country like Afghanistan, there was diversity always. But the ruling class and those in power, of course, the Pashtuns, were all they considered themselves majorities, and of course they were always. If we talk about the basic principles of democracy, when you're a majority, you rule, right? And so, from 1979 onwards, various other factions and tribal communities have aligned themselves with our neighbors. Iran kind of naturally aligned itself with the Hazara community because they share a similar faith of the Shia sect of Islam. The Tajiks, you know, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, those regions closer to the northern border of Afghanistan, more the the Tajik community, they align themselves with them. Pakistan, interestingly, because it shares the longest and the the, the biggest border with Afghanistan uh, of all of our neighbors, they align themselves more with with the Pashtuns because strategically they need alliance with the Pashtuns to be able to then address the, the Pashtun divide in their country. And so various different factions supporting various different ethnicity groups. And instead of unifying the various different groups, the division really started with the invasion of Russia and then America supports to the Mujahideen because the Mujahideen then split across ethnic lines. So Ahmad Shah Massoud being a Tajik led the North and the Tajik movement. Hikmatyar being a Pashtun kind of led the Pashtuns. Ali Mazari, Hazara, kind of leading the Hazara. Rustam. Dostam, you know, the uh, Turk, he's a, he's a Uzbek. Uzbek. So he uh, aligned the, the Uzbeks and the Turkmen, uh, again, another minority around him. And so the division across ethnicities really began then. And it just, the, the various different countries and political groups supporting these elements started to really both directly and indirectly support supported the various ethnic factions that led more and more to the division among them. What happens in 2001, there's uh, supposedly a democracy and everybody coming together. And one of Car- President Karzai's biggest mission was was to unify the country. And this is why he brought all the drug lords and warlords and, you know, ethnic tribal elders from from all ethnicities to come. And, and, and I have to be and we all have to be fair, give President Karzai that credit because he has the political skill to be able to do that. And he does it really well. But at the end, also, they were brought in not because they intrinsically believed in wanting to join forces for a unified nation. They were bought. Dostum became the biggest U.S. ally. You know, money was pumped into him day, you know, on a monthly basis, cash, monetary contribution to his willingness to work with a supposedly central government. And so were all the other warlords across the country. Uh, America funded heavily in buying the support of these various different factions and warlords wanting to work for different ethnic, you know, for their own ethnic priorities. So while it seemingly it looked like they were all working together, in reality, nobody really was working together. And I witnessed that myself once I joined the Ministry of Education, because what I discovered In 2020, June of 2020, when I was appointed Minister of Education, the Ministry of Education 
was divided across ethnic lines, linguistic line, religious lines, and the, the ministry was so political, so political, that on the day that I uh, joined the ministry, predominantly Pashtun uh, province named Kandahar, which is my hometown, had 6,000 formal teachers, but a predominantly ethnically uh, Tajik province uh, named Mazar or uh, uh, Mazar Sharif, uh, Balkh, or, or rather, Balkh is a province, had 21,000 formal teachers. And I share this data not to defend or argue, but just as a stark number to share the narrative of what happened in 20 years from 2001 until 2020 in Afghanistan in a seemingly benign ministry called education ministry, which whose sole purpose was to pro provide the service of education across the country to children. But when you look at the data and you analyze it at the very simple, basic level, Two areas that have similar populations, meaning about the same amount of populations of people and size and the same similar amount of land size, these two provinces, one in the north, one in the south. One has 6,000 formal teachers, one has 21,000 teachers. I think that speaks volumes to the injustice that Afghans faced for 20 years with America's presence and there should be no surprise why the children of the South ended up going across the border to the madrasas where education was offered, terrorist education, but families wanted education for their children. They could not differentiate between a terrorist education versus a uh, neutral education. Across the border to Pakistan. Across the border, yes. Pakistan's madrasas trained millions of our boys to become the foot soldiers of the Taliban regime. You mentioned that long border between Pakistan and uh, Afghanistan. It's 1,660 miles or 2,670 kilometers. The Canadian-American journalist Mathieu uh, Aikens, uh, in an article uh, quoting a senior education official of the Taliban, who told him, I'm quoting, we want education for girls and cooperation with the international community. And then he added, but within our values. What are those values? This is where I um, disagree with the Taliban's uh, stand on education for girls and their values. Because first of all, it is unclear as to what, what the Taliban's values are. I mean, and this this is something we don't understand as Afghans ourselves. It's not a monolithic organization. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. But even as some of our uh, countrymen and women claim that to be a Talib is to be a Pashtun or, or and vice versa, to be a Pashtun is to be a Talib, which is a criminal thing to do. And, and I personally face that every day. Because you're a Pashtun. Because I'm a Pashtun. So you must be a Talib. Exactly. And that's what many of my countrymen and women who speak who are not Pashtuns constantly say that, that the Taliban are a Pashtun movement. The Taliban are not a Pashtun movement. I want to make that clear. They have a specific agenda, which is political, which is violent. So they're not representing Pashtun culture. They're not representing Pashtun people. They're not representing the, Pash the Pashtun way of life. They happen to be majority Pashtuns. And this is where I want to make it clear. The reason that Pashtuns across the borders, both in Afghanistan and in Pakistan, have been able to be recruited to these terrorist training camps is because neither Pakistan as a nation, nor Afghanistan as a nation, have truly invested in changing the future of children since the past 45 years in Afghanistan. I reiterate again, the fact that for 20 years, the populations in which this violence was taking place these communities in the south and in the east of Afghanistan, which are predominantly Pashtun, schools were not built, teachers were not hired, books were not sent and given to them under the premise of, oh, there's war going on, there's violence going on. 
And my challenge to my predecessors at the Ministry of Education in Afghanistan from 2001 until 2020 was, wasn't that precisely your job? It's easy to do work in regions where everything is peaceful and the community welcomes you. It was the job of the Ministry of Education, the government of Afghanistan, to go to the regions where it was difficult, to make peace with the communities, to allow education to happen. And so when the Pashtun boys and girls don't have an opportunity to educate, of course, many Pashtun families are forced to send their boys across the border to the madrasas. And so, yes, a lot of a lot of Taliban happen to be of Pashtun origin, but they are not representative of the Pashtun culture or the Pashtun uh, history as I know it and as millions of other Pashtuns across the world know it. In your tenure as Minister of Education, were you able to make any uh, positive inroads that remain today? You know, that's an interesting question, and I laugh at it. Positive inroads, I think, for me, was getting rid of all the political appointees that were there basically devouring Afghan children's assets through free salaries, free cars, wasting their time and the time of so many of the, uh, you know, the actual workers of the ministry. I got rid of them because I did not care who which political party they belonged to, whose brother they were, whose sister they were, who appointed them. I did a thorough assessment. I had 17 uh, advisors the day I joined the ministry. Uh, two were women, uh, 15 were men. And after doing a thorough investigation of who they were, what their backgrounds were, and what their contribution to the ministry really was, it was very, very difficult to find their contribution to the ministry. And so because I had not brought them and because I had no political affiliation with anybody, I let them go. And I considered that an accomplishment. In addition to that, for the first time in the 20 years of history since 2001, I and my top officials that I worked with wrote the first national education policy for Afghanistan without a single penny of the donor community to help us write that, or a single inclusion of an expert, quote unquote, uh, that had uh, non-Afghan roots. So this was a totally Afghan entity, experts and myself as the leader, where we drafted and wrote down what we envisioned for the education of Afghanistan to do and to deliver. And finally, in the short 14 months of time that I had, under very, very stressful times, both politically and, and violence-wise, uh, I was able to restructure the ministry, downsizing it from a 5,000-plus ministry headquarter, people coming and sitting and doing nothing, getting a, s a salary, where schools in Kabul City didn't have enough teachers or administrators to run schools. So I was not getting rid of people. I was not going to fire people to become jobless, but instead reshift the strategy to downsize the ministry so it can become a bit more efficient and send the unwanted or unneed, not needed staff to the schools where they were more needed. So these were the three main accomplishments that I have made that, I, that I'm proud of, and I, and I think those remain right now. Everyone has an escape story. How did you leave Afghanistan. I came on the very planes that people have seen the pictures, the U.S. military planes with people sitting on the floor of the military, squeezed in to make sure that we could fit as many people as we possibly could. Um, this was probably the hardest decision of my life, but a decision to flee was more because of my daughter, who was almost 12 years of age last October, uh, last August. And uh, looking at her and l potentially risking her future uh, forced me as a mother to make a decision to leave and give an opportunity to my own daughter. But knowing that I have left millions of daughters who depended on me and who depend on me, and I hope that I'm able to serve them in one shape or another. Now you have an inspiring story of a woman-owned business in Kandahar that is actually part of this book, Embroidering 
within boundaries. Talk about what you were trying to accomplish with this woman-owned business. The positive news is that this is the only hope today that I cling to. I nurture my soul positively, knowing that the women of Kandahar Treasure are bravely coming back to their work daily in Kandahar province, in Kandahar city, still creating beautiful embroidered products. And the the Taliban has not raised objections to your work? No, this was the surprising thing that we received because I did not think that we could open up our women operation in a place called Kandahar, where the leadership of the Taliban is. Interestingly enough, when the women reached out to me last uh, September, uh, September of 2021, saying we want to go back to work, because our operation had shut down for a couple of months, there was heavy violence in Kandahar City prior to the fall. My question to the women was, how are you going to go? And why are you taking this risk? And the women's response was very beautiful. They said, what more do we have to risk? Either watch our children and ourselves die of starvation or take the risk to go back and work. And luckily, the Taliban administration in Kandahar have not posed any problems to them. The women come daily, work, produce, sell, and earn their living in a very integrity, uh, in, a, in a very in a way where it is full of integrity and honor. They're not begging on the street. They're not, they're not receiving any donations from the international community through grants. They're producing beautiful products that they sell, and the profits of, of those products help sustain them and their families. But on, on the issue of uh, girls' education, uh, the Taliban continues to resist efforts to extend or to bring back the previous regime's educational system. Any chance of that breaking down? I'm hopeful, and I think the reason I'm hopeful is that there's a great division among the Taliban leadership on this issue of girls' education. There are only three, three men out of the entire cabinet who oppose girls' education, and one of the three is, of course, um, the the leadership, the top leadership of the Taliban administration. Uh, So hopeful in the sense that there's a great amount of support within the remaining administrative body of the Taliban uh, who, who are very vocal about saying that girls need to be educated. Second, I think what this Uh, situation of the closure of girls' schools beyond seventh grade has done, it has kind of awakened the Afghan society where communities that you would have never heard from speaking in support of girls' education are coming out and speaking in support of it. Yes, it's painful right now as we're going through it, but in the long run, I think girls' schools will reopen. And I think this process of debates is empowering the society at large to really invest their personal energies in understanding the value of education. And I think that's crucially important to the future of education in Afghanistan. Recently, there were, in fact, women demonstrating on the streets of Kabul, demanding their rights. It was broken up by the Taliban. Yes, and and, and, and those are important and women are uh, uh, demonstrating. But I think beyond the physical demonstrations that we see on the streets, there is a mental demonstration across the country, across the genders. Like I said, religious leaders, tribal elders, uh, community people living in villages, they're coming out. Uh, And they might not be making news media because they're not women on Kabul streets fighting the Taliban. But these religious authorities or tribal authorities are having public conversations in support of women's education and women's work in ways that historically has never happened. When I was pulled out of school as a refugee in Pakistan in uh, 1987, I did not have even the local neighbors support that, meaning in support of... Uh, nobody spoke against the decision of the Mujahideen at that time to force me and my little sister out of school. No other girls were going to school in the community except for us two. 
Today, I am happy to see that there's a national conversation taking place in support of girls' education that historically never happened in Afghanistan. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you for having me. You were just listening to Rangina Hamidi on Afghanistan, past and present. I talked with her in Boulder, Colorado. Rangina Hamidi, an educator and activist, was the last minister of education of Afghanistan before the Taliban took power. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent, progressive nonprofit in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such voices as Arundhati Roy, Noam Chomsky, and Tariq Ali. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To get copies of today's program, Rangina Hamidi on Afghanistan, Past and Present, and for Vijay Prashad's book, Washington Bullets, CIA Coups and Assassinations, just give us a call, 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us, 1-800-444-1977. Special thanks to Suzanne Smith and KGNU. Joe Rich is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Nadia Noor singing Bibi Gol Afruz, Shining Flower Lady, a traditional song from Herat, Western Afghanistan. alternativeradio.org alternativeradio.org we too are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, mp3s or cds of our programs so we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there Hello. hello Is anybody anybody out there? there? Calling anybody on this frequency. This is Helicopter 40 Alpha. Tune in to CGSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting out of Calgary, Alberta, and Treaty 7 lands. Hello!
Which enlightens and awakens mine 